Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Shiloh, we are moving on with some Doctrine and Covenants here. We're just doing sections 3, 4, and 5 today. But here in these sections, we we skip over a little bit of the historical context. I mean, we get it's out of the section headings, um, but we're not reading it like in Joseph Smith history or another source. And so we're going to discuss the historical context here because these sections basically don't make sense without <laughs> the historical context. Um, so you have to discuss it. I mean, I put it in the section headings. Uh, but we're, you know, we're not going to delve quite as much into the history more when I analyze um, these revelations themselves. But these are revelations, especially three and five, um, force kind of, you know, a little bit of its own thing. But uh, revelations surrounding the interactions of Martin Harris and Joseph Smith, particularly with regard to the loss of the 116 pages, which is the initial manuscript of the translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, I was thinking over this uh, a little bit before, and I thought you've you've probably had uh, more of these experiences than I have. But, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever written a, a long paper and then lost it, like you didn't save it or something in your, your Word document. <laughs> that ever Anything yeah. ever disappear on you, Shiloh? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so, it has. Uh, you know, probably not 116 pages, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> No, not when I needed it. Now, I, I did lose all of my undergraduate uh, letters because they were saved on a hard drive that somehow uh, just got deleted or lost. And so yeah. uh, that has been a matter of mourning for me. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I've, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's, there's an extreme amount of loss here. And there's, there's quite a bit to unpack about this experience. And it's really interesting and mournful and inspiring and gives us great insight into both the character of Joseph and Martin Harris, and then also God and how he's trying to teach Joseph and bring him up and make him into the prophet that he's supposed to be. Section three is really fascinating, the way that it starts off with this discussion. The works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. So what happens here in, in the historical context, obviously, Joseph Smith and Martin Harris begin to translate. We could have a whole discussion about the translation process itself, and there's lots of fascinating things there. But in any case, they, they spend a lot of time on this. Months and months go into producing these 116 pages. This is Joseph Smith's initial introduction, I should, I could say, to translation. He's not as good at it, right? He's just starting off. And so it's kind of slow going. Um, they're learning this process, how it works, and the best way to do it. In any case, it takes them a long time to get through these 116 pages. I'm not sure why exactly they stop when they do, 
But uh, Martin Harris's wife has been bugging him for a long time about proof of why are you spending all this money on this Joseph Smith? I need to know what it is you guys are really doing. You got to prove to me that you're not just goofing off all day, right? Finally prevails upon him to convince Joseph to convince the Lord, right? Quote unquote, (laughs) to take those 116 pages home so that his wife can see them. Now, this has always seemed odd to me, and I don't know if this question has ever come up to you. Why why give them the actual pages you're working on? Why not, like, copy a couple of them and take <laughs> them? Like, why give them the only copy you have? Like, if I'm coming from an IT background, and it's just like, man, I have backups of backups of backups. I just don't get this. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought about that concept. Why is it that they took the actual only manuscript they had and... And Martin Harris took it home. I don't know. Well, we definitely know that he learned from his mistake because when it came time to actually give it to the printers to right. print the Book of Mormon, the Joseph, uh, you know, E.B. Grant is like, hey, so I need uh, I need the copy from the Book of Mormon. And so he, he's like, give it to me. And Joseph's like, um, uh-uh. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> so it goes back to Oliver <laughs> and he's like, in my sight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he looks at Oliver and he's like, you need to rewrite the whole Book of Mormon. So he does. So yep. Oliver, as soon as he's done translating it, he rewrites the entire Book of Mormon all over again. And he gives the rewrite to the printers. Just, and it's called the printer manuscript. And that's where a ton of the mistakes come from between Oliver uh, rewriting it and then the uh, printer, you know, putting everything in. And there's so fascinating. I mean, I, I, I could watch it over again. I've already watched it twice, but Royal Skousen does this whole thing on, on the earliest text, right? And it goes into this so interesting, so interesting, uh, all of his research on this. But explains he gives really good context and interesting explanations for how all of the these errors made into the Book of Mormon and how there's inconsistencies and I thought one of the very fascinating things was that there basically there's no one copy of the first edition of the Book of Mormon that's the same as another one because they all have different mistakes in them. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's it's a it's a fascinating process. I'm I am so super excited. There's a a lot of stories I have to tell about that too. So it's it's going to be an exciting time to talk about it. Going into section three here, we get some insight into the state. So after Martin Harris loses these pages, he comes back to Joseph, and Joseph free, freaks out that he's lost them. Martin, what have you done? You know, and they both just delve into terrible depression and anguish over the fact that they've lost this manuscript. They believe they've lost their souls, you know, and, and looking back on it, it, it seems a little extreme now, but this, this was the whole work they were tied up in, you know, everything, all their, all the money that they'd been spending their entire lives, everything that Joseph Smith had been dedicated to for all these years had been hammered into his mind by Moroni, how important and sacred this record was. And so to him losing this was, he says, I've lost my soul. You know, he feels that way. And the, this section gives an interesting response to that attitude of Joseph Smith, because it kind of goes back again to that discussion that we had when we brought up Moroni, you know, worried about how the Lord would or how the people would look at his words. And the Lord in not so many words basically says, it's not about you, Moroni. Like, I'm going to accomplish my work. I'm just letting you participate in it if you want. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens here with Joseph Smith and, and Martin Harris. The Lord says, you guys, my work has not been frustrated by anything that just happened. 
everything that needs to be done is going to get taken care of. And so you can either participate in it with me or you can go your separate way if you want. But stop being so concerned with your work. This is my work. And you're just participating in it so that I can teach you and bring you up into who I am. So you'll learn greater. This whole section is fascinating to me. The Lord is trying to bring them into an understanding of who he is, that they should not be so upset about the loss of their own work. They should be more concerned with just the work of the Lord, that God is merciful. And yet, you know, Shiloh, you were pointing out when we were discussing, and you'll have some to say about this. And yet through all of this, as Joseph, this revelation is coming through Joseph Smith, and he's writing this down. We still get a lot of Joseph in this revelation, right? We see this, uh, the Lord, Lord presented in one way, and then the Lord, there's a little bit of Joseph's concern about the Lord being vengeful on the other hand. And it's a little bit of this back and forth, but still we can see the true character of God shining through in this revelation with the way that he discusses these circumstances with Joseph Smith and, and how they're to proceed. Yeah, I love that you bring out that this is God's work. This is not Joseph's work. This is not Martin's work. And it never has been. It's never been our work. This is God's work in glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life. We just get to have the opportunity of playing whatever part we're going to play in it. That is so comforting because then we realize it's not up to us whether or not this fails or succeeds. God's going to do what God's going to do, and he's going to be successful at it. We just get to be a participant in this. And when we start looking at it in those ways, and we let God be God, and in our personal relationships, and in our church relationships, and in everything that we're called to, all of the callings that we hold, all of the responsibilities that we have in our life, whether or not it just be in our families, with our friends, with our work. You know, my wife has her own business. She owns a successful at-home business. And so we still homeschool our kids. And, and so there's this pressure building up when, you know, for several years, she was extremely busy. You know, she had multiple employees and it was just so stressful. And there came this time when she had this aha moment when she said to herself, okay, this is not my business anymore. I'm turning this over to God. God runs this. I just work here. It's just this mental shift, like what we're talking about right here, where this whole life is God's work and glory. Even our vocations, the jobs we go, we get up in the morning to and we go to, this is God's work. We just get to have a part to play in it. And when we really let that sink in and adopt that, my experience with it has been that there is so much peace that comes in with that. So yeah, I love that you bring that up. In the historical context, I love that Lucy Harris, which is Martin Harris's wife, is that she was initially very supportive of Joseph. And she talked with Joseph's mother, Lucy Mac Smith, and they, they were on friendly terms to talk with each other. And in fact, it was Martin Harris's wife who was the first one to see the plates in vision. That when she had prayed about it that night that she had a vision. And I think she gave even gave Joseph some, uh, some spending cash towards that endeavor. And Martin was the skeptical one. And then finally, when Joseph had to leave because of persecution, he couldn't translate, so he had to leave to Pennsylvania and, and down, I think, around Harrisburg. So he's down in Pennsylvania around uh, Emma's place. 
And this is when Martin Harris decides he's going to get involved. And just as Joseph is leaving, he hands Joseph, I think, the $50, right? He says, this is for your journey. He tells everybody, you know, he kind of does it publicly. He tells everybody publicly, I give this free and clear. This is not a debt. And he, and he's, it's very interesting the way that uh, you had to handle things back then. So he gives it to Joseph. Joseph takes off, uses that $50 to get to where he's going. And then Martin Harris, the first time he shows up is when he, he they have the manuscripts now, right? or they have the, the rubbings that then Martin Harris takes into Professor Anton. And we have that story. But what I think is really fascinating is that through this, Lucy becomes a little bit disenchanted because she doesn't get to see the plates. She had already been given the vision of the plates, but that wasn't sufficient for her. She didn't want this experience where you could possibly deny it, right? No, a dream's a dream's a dream, but I, I want to feel it, right? And so this creeps in. But what I think is, is interesting. We've talked about it, and we brought this up a few times for the last two episodes, but... I'm absolutely fascinated, and I'm gonna—I'm sure I'm gonna bring it up again. This whole concept of how we tell our stories, and for me, how we tell our stories here is absolutely incredible. Because you know, we—I we, brought up uh, Joseph Campbell, right, and the hero of a thousand faces and the hero's journey. You know, we talked about this a few times, and it just—it follows the pattern so so well. It's so hilarious because Joseph Campbell's journey, and just to reiterate, uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to the previous uh, episodes, is that Joseph Campbell had read all of the great books of Western civilization and Eastern civilization, and he had found that there was a pattern in how we tell our stories. And so he writes this book called A Hero of a Thousand Faces, which basically is the thousand faces are all the different books that have ever been written, but it's the same story. It follows the same basic plot line. You know, you change the characters, you change a little bit of the, the who, what, where, when, how, but eventually there's a pattern that emerges. And, and that pattern, at least for the first several steps, there's 12 steps and I'm not going to go over them, but the very first step is that a hero is always called to an adventure by some kind of event. You know, he's, he's struggling where he's at. And one of the stories I love to talk about is uh, Disney's Hercules, you know, the little cartoon. Mm. And uh, because you have this, uh, you know, when he's, a, when he's a young man, he he wants to be a hero, and, you know, the hero's journey right out the gate. And so he he gets uh, through a series of events, he gets called on his, his journey, right? Zeus appears and he gets called on his journey, he kind of finds out who he is. And so that's his call to adventure. And the second stage of being called to adventure is when you have to meet your mentor, Hercules meets his little mentor, his little goat buddy, right? And uh, his little Danny DeVito goat buddy. <laughs> and, uh, and so after this, he, uh, he gets mentored by him. But being mentored isn't enough because the mentor trains you. He, he goes through and he makes you prepared for what you're about ready to, to get into. And so you, you get out the gates, for, and so the mentor gets you. And so whatever it is that he's been training you for, you go out and you're successful for a little while. And inevitably, you're going to fail. And so this is where there's always a failing. In every great story, the hero, once he's been trained by the mentor, he goes out on his own, he fails. Same thing with the Star Wars theme, right? So you have Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. He's called to his adventure. His mentor shows up with Obi-Wan. He gets out on his, his call to adventure. He starts experimenting with the Force, and inevitably he fails, right? Something happens in with his life that he, he doubts himself. And then at this point, the, the mentor kind of dissolves away, and there's what's called the helper that shows up. And so these helpers in Star Wars, for instance, you got Han Solo and Leia and C-3PO, and you have, you have the gang, right? The gang shows up. In Her- Hercules, you have his, his buddies that show up, you have Meg that shows up, and you have all these other people who call in to support him. Every story happens this way, and we're seeing this happen with Joseph Smith. His call to adventure comes from the First Division. God tells him he has a work for him to do. And then after he goes with that for a little while, he meets his mentor with Moroni. 
And from his mentorship with Moroni, he, he goes for four years being mentored on the same day, September 22nd, every single year. And then once that happens, he gets the plates, he's successful with it for a time, and that's when the helper shows up with Martin Harris. And with Martin Harris, and then there's a huge failing. And that a bit, you know, it's, it's like there's this huge place where you come crashing down into the abysmal state of like death and destruction. And in fact, even in Joseph's record, it says that he thought he was going to be completely destroyed, right? <laughs> And then from that point, there's always a resurrection, but it's, it's a type of resurrection where there's a transformation. And we're going to see that pretty kind of moving into the next, uh, the next sections when Joseph all of a sudden goes into hyperdrive with how he translates. Once Oliver comes along as the second helper, then at this point, his trans, Joseph's transformation becomes secure. And all of a sudden for the next five years after this, that's where like the entire bulk of the Doctrine and Covenants comes from. And so it's not to say that, you know, I don't want to get out of this or to, to impart that by following the same pattern as all the literary works, that that makes the telling of the Elia story a fiction. That's not the point here. It's that it's fascinating. And we talked about this with the very first episode with about how we write history. And you brought up a really great point that we write history because of all sorts of bias. And even if the person who's writing it is telling an exact account of what happened, there still is going, are going to be details that are left out. You can't tell the entire story. You've got to omit certain details. And so we have to ask ourselves, are these the most important stories that we can tell of Joseph Smith? Why, are there other stories that we can emphasize of great, either great faith-building stories? And the answer is yes, there are incredible stories that you can tell. But the fact that we chose these ones is not, is not a method of manipulation. It's just, it's what we do as human beings. We give Joseph Smith's story in the way of the hero's journey. We talk about it because that's, <laughs> that's how we talk as human beings. It's not like it's purposefully or consciously done necessarily. It's, it's no, part not of at all. The, the fabric of how we tell stories. And so it just naturally, this is the way that it's put together. Yes, exactly right. And with the minute we begin to see that, we're like, it, it, it becomes exciting because then when we see the next story, you can almost plan what's going to happen next and what story is going to be talked about next. Mm -hmm. And so here we see Joseph's darkest moment so far. This is the moment when he's sunken down into the absolute deaths. Now, it's important in this way that we're telling the story is... When we, you read it, you read it here in section three, verse one. But I was just writing an article for Latter Day Peace Studies that we're going to be posting here in the next few days. It'll be posted, I think, by the time this comes out on mourning. And in that discussion of mourning, I talked a lot about the true self and the false self. This is a a concept from a Catholic theologian named Thomas Merton from the the mid of the 20th century, about uh, 50, 60 years ago. And Thomas Merton gave this word. Now, in the Book of Mormon context, the false self, we, we talk about that in the Book of Mormon as the natural man. You know, in, in Mosiah 3, where it talks about the natural man is an enemy to God and has been since the beginning, this is the false self. The false self is, we have to recognize this idea that in scriptures, God created man in his own image. So man is made in the image of God. God sees man and he sees himself in man's reflection because God has put his image on man and man reflects that back. So man is made in the image of God. But what's happened is that man puts on a covering 
a false identity, and he covers himself in these layers of false identity, of traditions, of meanings, of beliefs, of stories, of interactions. The fact that your society and civilization acts a certain way, the way that your language is formulated. You know, when a child is born, boom, you throw language at him, and then you throw nationality on him, and then there's a religion thrown on him. And so there's all of these identities, and then there's little sub-identities that we get when we're growing up. Maybe in maybe skin color matters. Maybe gender matters. Maybe sexual orientation or preference matters in society. Maybe it doesn't. But these micro-identities start to form. It's not necessarily that these are wrong identities, but at some point they're saying, are these your true identity? Or are these getting in the way and encumbering you having true experiences with God? Is your identity of who and what you are cutting off your relationship to accessing and repenting and seeing God perfectly, or are they enhancing it? And so what we've got to do is it's really hard because we see through the filter of this false self, this false self that we're born into and that we, we begin to see ourselves through and the language that we have that often distorts our view and as we've said it uh, you know, several times, I know, you know, like what Thomas Merton again said is that so much really depends upon our view of God. We have to learn to see God clearly because once we see him more clearly, then we begin to see ourselves more clearly. Just like Enos, he repents of himself. He can't even understand what this thing is that he just experienced with God. And he's like, how is this even possible? I don't even know what this experience is. And God says, you know, it's it's the atonement. And I know that you, you know that I can't lie. And so God begins to tell him what this atonement thing is. And he begins to learn God's nature differently. So he sees himself differently. And the minute he sees himself differently, the very next step he gives is he starts praying for the Lamanites, for the other and so this whole step of through repentance and seeing God differently, we see ourselves differently. And by seeing ourselves differently, we see the other differently. The sons of Mosiah and Alma experience the exact same thing. And so when we have these patterns and scriptures of this repentance of awakening to a new idea of God, all of a sudden, we're almost always called on an adventure to help our enemies. It's a really powerful way of looking at it. But when we see here in section three, It says, the works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. And I love what you said, Ben, there about it's God's work. Nothing is going to frustrate God's work because God operates as the true self. And as we operate on the true self with God, nothing we will ever do will ever be frustrated. The false self wants to set an expectation about what that looks like. And so we make expectations of reality. And I, you know, I taught my seminary class, if I told him once, I told him a hundred times, that the equation for anger and for these negative emotions that we have of lost expectation is that we expect reality to be X and we discover through experience that it's actually Y. But we, we, we want to hold on to that X. We want to hold on to what we think reality should be and, and, it, and our belief systems say it is, but yet reality keeps presenting itself as Y. And in that moment and experience, where we don't want to give up on our perceptions of reality, that is where anger manifests. That's how it is created. And so in this, we see that God is like, listen, I'm not in a false self. And he says in verse 2, For God cannot walk in crooked paths, neither can he turn to the right hand nor to the left, neither doth he vary from that which he has said. Therefore his paths are straight, and his course is one eternal round. See, God is not the false self. But he says in verse 3, Remember, remember, that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of men. See, it's not the true self that's ever frustrated. Even when things don't seem to... Joseph loses the 116 pages, and God's like... God never even mentions that. 
God's not like, you know, everything's lost. No, God had already prepared for it. God's work is not frustrated, but it is the false self that Joseph's and, and Martin Harris's false self that saw themselves come into this state of despair. And then just, just one story here, Ben, and then I, I want to get your, uh, I want to get what you have to say here about, uh, about verse four, because we had been talking a little bit about here about this third person view of God and vengeance of a just God. But Joseph and, and Martin Harris both say that they received severe rebuking. You know, once Joseph got the Yerm and Thummim back, he looked in through the Yerm and Thummim and God talked with him and he was severely rebuked. He says worse than he had ever been before. And I wanted to sit with that for a minute and, and kind of tell a personal story of mine. Um, I've, I've told the story in, in a few personal settings. But when I was a younger man, there came a time when there were some things in my life. I was like, should I go talk to the bishop about this? Should I not talk to the bishop? I just like, it's like this gray air. Like, should I, shouldn't I? I don't know. I don't know. And so I just happened to be in this moment when uh, I ended up going in there and I was talking, I, I sat down with the bishop and I wasn't even completely convinced like I needed to talk with him about anything or, or whatever it was. And I think even the of ironies is that I was uh, I was in for a temple recommend elapsed temple recommend interview, and so in my mind I'm going over these things like should I tell him about some of these things that have just been going on in my life or I don't know should I should I not? And as I'm sitting there, um, I sit down in the in the chair with him, and he's like, "Hey Shiloh, how you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm good." And he's like, "What can I do for do for you?" And I'm still not convinced like I, if I need to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so like five seconds goes by and I'm sitting in the chair looking across the bishop and I'm like, say something. And so I'm telling myself, I'm like, say something. He's, he's going to know something's, think something's wrong. Say something. And then 10 seconds goes by and he's like, well, now he knows something's wrong. Now it's like, I'm, I'm guilty out the game. It's like, I don't even know what's going on. And so it's like 15 seconds goes by and I'm like, say something. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was, I was like, all right, here. And so I just... I said, well, I, I think there's some things I, I want to talk with you about. And I took this really deep breath. And I've explained this before to a couple people. And, and Ben, maybe you can back me up. Maybe you've seen this too, is whenever I've trained a salesman, a door-to-door salesman specifically, and I've trained a brand new one, and the younger they are, the more this happens. It's hilarious. Is I go out on the doors, you know, you do all these trainings before you ever go out on the door. And whenever I take a salesman and hit the very first door they have, they knock on it and they're so nervous because, you know, it's like taking all this information and trying to take a sip of cup, a cup of a uh, sip of water from a fire hose. And the first door opens and they take this really deep breath. And then just like it just in one long sentence, ex- just expel like <laughs> everything they've ever learned about everything. right? <laughs> and uh, I laugh about this every single time. I think it's happened to me 10 times with 10 different people I've taken on and every single person. So I'm sitting there across from the bishop and uh, he's like, anything I can do for you? And after like 20 seconds, I take this really long, deep breath. And I, th- <laughs> and I think he knows exactly what's coming, but he puts his hand up and he's, he's like, hold on, hold on, Shiloh, hold on. Before you say anything, he says, before you go ahead and continue, there's two things you need to know. He says, the first thing you need to know is how much I love you. He says, and the second thing you need to know is even more important than that, infinitely more important. You need to know how much your Savior loves you. And I wasn't expecting that. Of all the things that my false self could have been expecting, that was not what I was expecting. And to this day, I've never been rebuked so harshly as I was in that moment. I've never been brought down to the depths of despair and humility at the same time as I was in that one second. 
in that moment of his declaration of love for me, because it was a genuine and a true declaration of love. And he had this, he had this knowledge of God's love that you can't fake. And when he told me that God loved me and my savior loved me, that came from such a place of raw honesty that I, I sunk down into my chair and I knew I, it's like I stood completely disarmed in front of my creator and I knew I was loved. I knew God loved me. And in that love, I was disarmed. I was rebuked. Like I was chastised. It was like after that, it was just like, yeah, here are all the questions. It was like after that, everything just flowed freely. And I walked out of there on a cloud. I was so light. I was so loved. Hmm. And so when I see Joseph here rebuked, and we will turn here uh, and, and we'll start talking here about uh, in verse 10 about God's mercy. I, I see God's love through this whole thing in that deep, deep way that I did with that bishop decades ago. When Joseph is talking about all of this punishment that he know this, this, this possible punishment he's going to go through, I'm like, oh, that's Joseph. Well, there's Joseph. Yep, yep, yep. There, there's Joseph again. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when I see the mercy... And I see that pure, unadulterated, just compassion and reconciliation coming through. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's God right there. You do see it several times throughout this section. We were talking about verse 4 uh, before we started the, the podcast. And the whole of this section is written in an odd person. You know, it's like third person, but also second person but also first person, and it switches in between all of these all over the place. I mean, it's apparently the Lord speaking, right? But he he doesn't say um, I very much here. He I think there's one spot where it says that, but most of the time it's talking about God in the third person. And so I don't know if, uh, I mean, it says that this revelation was received through the Urim and Thummim, but that doesn't necessarily say who who gave it. It could have been an angel or Moroni that gave this revelation, which would actually make the person make sense, you know, because Moroni gave him certain commandments. So it could be an I, and then he's talking about God. So it's hard to say exactly, and it doesn't really matter in that sense. It's just a it's just a curiosity as to how it's written, and this is Joseph's perception, right? He's writing this down with with God sort of in the third person. And in verse 4, um, it says, For although a man may have many revelations and have power to do many mighty works, yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets it not the counsels of God. So this is a definite God, a capital G definite God, and follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. Now, I'm not trying to get too, you know, pedantic on this or, or too grammatical, but, you know, the last part of this verse could be taken a couple different ways. And the way that it's written with the capital G God definitely, you know, implies that we're talking about the same God that verse three is talking about. But because it's using the article A, A just God in this, it's almost like it could be talking about a different God. And I don't mean a, a different actual God. I mean a different God that we uh, make up in our own image, right? 
and not to sound blasphemous here, but but maybe a false god, just in the sense that we are viewing God in not an accurate way, not a complete way, not a full picture of who he really is, right? But rather a very incomplete or limited or skewed vision of who God is. And that's basically what's going on with Joseph Smith and Martin Harris right now. They are all upset about this frustration of this work because they don't view God in the right way. They are worried about the judgments of God. Joseph Smith yells, I've lost my soul. Um, so does Martin Harris. You know, they, they think all is lost. Joseph Smith says all is lost. And they're viewing God in, in a very vengeful way. Just like it says here at, at the end of verse four, vengeance of a just God upon him. And I think this whole process in this section is a way of the Lord trying to bring them out of that in a sense. And especially when we get to section five, I see a lot of that. The Lord's bringing them out of this. He says, guys, the 116 pages, it's no big deal. Chill out. We've got it taken care of. The problem isn't that. The problem right now, Joseph, is your attitude. And man, I I feel like you know, this sounds like me lecturing to my kids all the time. It's like, look, it doesn't matter that you made a mess necessarily. What matters is your attitude about cleaning it up right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I like see myself in this, right? So, so this is my false God. <laughs> but it's, it's like, yeah, Joseph and, and Martin, the problem right now isn't so much the lost 116 pages. I can fix that with the snap of my fingers. You think that it matters that you wrote a bunch of things on ink in ink on a page and they're gone? I'm God. I can do I can take care of that. I can do any of this. That's not the problem. The problem right now is your attitude. I can go somewhere else and complete my work with somebody else, but you need to change your view of me. And once you've changed your view of me, then we can move forward with the work. And how does he do that? Oh, it's just amazing how the Lord approaches him here with so much love. He says, Behold, thou art Joseph, and thou wast chosen to do the work of the Lord. But because of transgression, if thou art not aware, thou wilt fall. But remember, God is merciful. Therefore, repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I gave you. Here's the only I, I think in the whole section. And um, so I'm not sure who I here is, but anyway, it's it's ostensibly the Lord, but it, it's, it's hard to say exactly. And thou art still chosen and art again called to the work. The Lord just bringing him back and saying, look, there's still a work to do. All is not lost. Guess what? Like hardly anything is lost, Joseph. The most important part of the Book of Mormon, you guys haven't even gotten to it yet. So it's okay. <laughs> Verse 16, nevertheless, my work shall go forth. For inasmuch as the knowledge of a Savior has come into the world through the testimony of the Jews, even so shall the knowledge of a Savior come unto my people. And we skip down to verse 19. And for this very purpose are these plates preserved, which contain these records, that the promises of the Lord might be fulfilled, which he made to his people. It seems to me this is referencing specifically Christ's teachings, right? What we would call the Sermon at the Temple. We went out. And that is the most important part of this record because it corroborates 
everything in the Bible. It's the second testament of Jesus Christ. Got all these other writings of the prophets, which are really great and stuff. But this is what I want to bring forth. Nothing's going to stop it from getting out. Nothing. You guys can't screw this up. Okay. Just do your best. And if it's not good enough, I'll find somebody else. It's okay. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Just to, just to sit there in that moment for a second with this, this God that is looking at Joseph and he knows Joseph. He, he sees the true self of Joseph. He also recognizes what this false self is. You know, we wear this false self all over us. And yet this false self has cracks everywhere in, in this thing that we wear. And it's in the cracks that God finds us. That's where the light from within shines out. And you can see God here with Joseph sitting with them and seeking to reason with them. You know, Benny, as you and I talked, one of the things my, uh, my wife and I do a lot of talking about stuff too. And she has, uh, last year, the last uh, four or five months of last year, she went through the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenant. She, she read the, all, all the standard works and she read it really fast. It was supposed to be a, a fast read and kind of get a general overview of everything. And it's interesting. She came, uh, one of the things that she talked about uh, when we were going through, uh, some of the conversations as, as she was reading through it is she identified that more so in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's this pattern that's not as strongly held in the, in that she didn't find anywhere in the, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament as much. And that is this pattern that you have these moments of awe, of like, like God's awe. And then you immediately have that followed by the exception to the awe. And so right here you have this whole concept of where it says in 10, God is merciful. Therefore, repent for that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I given to you, and thou art still chosen and art again called to the work. See, that's the awe. You're like, awe. Then <laughs> 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 it comes and it like, it like sits right there with you. And when you really just sit on that, but the exception comes right up behind it. Except, but except thou do this, thou shalt be delivered up and become as other men and have no gift. While this is descriptively true, if, if we stay in our false self, we're not going to do this. I see that a lot of this as Joseph's reasoning in his own mind coming down into the page. No, it's not, yeah. tr it's not, it's not wrong. But the more I've personally experienced God, God doesn't give us the exception. I've created the exception my entire life. God gives me moments of awe. And then it's like, then I place my, the exception on God. Not necessarily that it's wrong. But to be in that moment of with God is to be in this moment where there's no judgment, where there is no guile, where there is no, you ought to have. He even tells us in James, the thing that started this whole story off, he's like, he's like if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all and abradeth not. He's not going to have that moment with you of like, you should have known better. You should have been better. You should, this should already be something that's common to you. There's not going to be any degradation in any of this. But yet in my own moment with God, and, and when I've had those moments of sitting there and letting that just be with me, I'm the one that brings to the table, yes, but. I'm the one that brings it. And it's not necessarily false, but then when that comes out, and, and I do this actually in my own journal writing. I've noticed this as I've gone over my own journal writing in places when I've felt the spirit, I almost always have a, yeah, but. This experience, this experience, but. And there's always like a qualifier to it. And I notice we do this in church all the time whenever talking about God's grace and his love and his mercy and his compassion. There's always a, 
Yeah, but we can't also, re- you know, do a way that he's also judge judgmental and he's full of justice and he's going to condemn and punish too. It's it's like there's there's something in us. It's and it, and I believe I so believe it's this this false self. There's something in this false self that cannot make do with the idea that it's just mercy, because we're like, yeah, but, <laughs> and it just comes out of us. And so I see God here so beautifully using like the Sermon on the Mount hermeneutic, right? Where you just see a God who's sitting and so eternally patient with Joseph, so eternally patient with Martin, who's coming there and it's their own false self that's destroying them from the inside out and causing all of this. Ah, man. You know, so when we get into section four, you know, so this is a section three is given to Joseph in section four. I love that it says, you know, and this is one of those famous missionary chapters and sections. I at one point had this whole thing memorized on my mission. I think I memorized it once for EFY too when I was a teenager. <laughs> now behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Should we stand up to say this, Shiloh? <laughs> <laughs> this in the standard of truth, right? You feel like you yeah, need to stand yeah. up to say it. <laughs> you know, this marvelous work. You know, I, the Book of Mormon is is considered a marvelous work and a wonder, and and just the whole restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But specifically, the Book of Mormon is very much considered this marvelous work and a wonder. Therefore, O oh, ye that embark in the service of God. See that you serve him with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, that you may stand blameless before God at the last day. Now, I think from our church cultural perspective, I think there's a lot, and, and I feel there's a lot, and I've heard it said a lot, this transactionalism that if you don't serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, you're not going to be blameless. And that statement is the false self. Mm-hmm. Because here we have that when we truly stand, the, the true self is that in which God has created. He sees his image in it. We're the ones that cover it with the false self. The false self is the one that blames. The false self is the one that tries to find fault. The false self is the one that's trying to pin the, con- the, the consequence on the action and to make this whole thing happen. When we stand blameless before God, it's because we have let go of the false self to where the true self truly understands his relationship to God that has always already been. That this blameless before God has everything to do with letting go of the false self that causes us to think in terms of blame. When we no longer think in terms of blame, there's no more blame. It's just being there present with God. And so we look at this as though a conditional statement as though we're sitting here and you have to serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. And if you don't, then you're going to be blamed and God's going to blame you. No, that's the false self. We just said that. Letting go of the blame. Now, this doesn't mean that God's saying everything goes. You know, a lot of people have, you know, we talk about uh, the Antichrist and the, you know, the knee whores and, and, you know, there's no sin, you know, the core whores. Every, everything's okay, right? Everything goes. That's not what we're talking about here. The false self is what leads us to sin. It's the true self that we begin to see our image, that our image is God's image, and we begin to see God's image in our countenance and not vice versa. We're not following section 116. We're not putting, we're not walking after the image of our own God, right? Mm -hmm. Whose image is in the likeness of the world. It's that, that phrase that we've said before that in the beginning, God made man in his own image, and ever since then, God's been trying to return the favor, right? And that's not it. But yet, when we come here to verse to verse three, if you have desires to serve God, you're called to the work. Just if you have a desire to be involved, guess what? God's calling you to and call you into this moment with Him. For behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest, and lo, he that thrusteth in his sickle with might, 
The same layeth up store that he perisheth not, but bringeth salvation to his own soul. You know, we talk about this as missionary work, but in a lot of ways, this is just God inviting everyone to come into the relationship with him. Everybody, if you have a desire, guess what? I'm calling you in. And I don't know about anybody else, but I've had these moments in my life where I feel like like there's this invisible force within me that's like pulling me towards something that I can't see. I wrote an article called Following Divine Clouds for the Latter-day Peace Studies, where the Israelites followed after these, these clouds, and the Jaredites did it too. And we talked about it when we were reading mm-hmm. and we were doing uh, the Come Follow Me for those. The, the cloud is always symbolic of this, this view of God that we don't understand yet. You can't, you can't mold it. You can't contort it. You can't encapsulate it. You can't put a cloud in a box. The, the Israelites tried. They fashioned the golden calf. They wanted, a, they wanted a god that they could manhandle, that they could distort, that they could make in an image that was unknown to them. Mm-hmm. But see, God's not that way. God will eventually reveal himself like he did to Moses and the brother of Jared face to face to where you can see the image and the countenance. But for the meantime, you follow this thing that you don't know. And I see this here, that this is what's coming on, that when this field being white already to harvest is he's like, I, I've got all this stuff in store for you. I've got all of this. And it's just right here, right now. You know, I really like the phrase that you were talking about at the end of verse two, that you may stand blameless before God at the last day. Conventional and, uh, you know, first layer of analysis of this word blameless is a an objective blameless, right? So like, you don't, God can't blame you for anything. But there's also some subjective blameless going on here because if we want to stand blameless before God in the objective sense, we have to also be willing to stand before God blameless in the subjective sense. That is, we don't come before God to accuse or blame anyone else. When we stand before God, not willing or not ready to condemn or blame anyone else, but simply willing to offer mercy, that's where we come face to face with God. And we know him. Because, as Moroni says, we see him as he is. I just, I love this verse saying that when we go and we serve God, then we come to know him. And then when we stand in front of him, then we stand blameless before him. We're not trying, we're not seeking to blame anyone or point the finger or be an accuser to anyone. And that is the kind of person that we want out there sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Not someone that's going out to condemn, someone that's going out to gather those sheep, to bring the lost in. And that's where verse three comes in. If you have a desire, you're called. That's it. He talks about how there's so much work to do here in in, in verse four. There are people that um, are ready to be gathered. They're ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is probably my favorite. And faith, hope, charity, and love with an eye single to the glory of God qualify him for the work. We talk a lot about your concept of worthiness. Yeah, the whole podcast on worthiness and and uh, all this stuff. And, and I think this word qualify is really interesting in this context because nothing in this verse 5 talks about worthiness, right? It just talks about where we are in our relationship with God. Are we ready to see people, are I single, are we ready to see people as he sees them through faith, hope, and charity? And then we're qualified. That's it. 
We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be sinless. We just have to be ready to see people the way God sees them. Just, just like verse two and three talked about. And then I, I love how after that qualification, then it says, remember faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. These are all things. It's like, okay, you're ready to do this. And if you want it to be a little easier going, <laughs> do these other things. You might have a little hard time if you don't remember brotherly kindness, you know, <laughs> these types of things. So these are all like qualities that are going to aid you as you seek to, to perform the work. Fits really well until we started discussing it. I, I hadn't seen before how this fits in with section three. I know that this is a revelation given to Joseph Smith Sr. You know, he wanted to know what he could do, but it does fit in with section three where we're talking about how the Lord is saying you're still called to the work because why? Because you have desires to serve to accomplish the work that I'll, I'll give to you. That's really a really good way of looking at that, especially when we look and we flip the page into section five, because here we have the section that's given to Martin Harris. Martin Harris still wants to be involved. He realizes his foibles. He realizes his frailties. He's not repented the way he should have. He still is in his false self. He's still worried about what other people think about him. He's still prideful. So we have all of this counsel that's going to try to get him out of his false self and to recognize us. But what I love about verse 7 is the Lord comes out and says, Behold, if they will not believe my word. So a little bit of context is that Joseph and Martin were worried about what other men were thinking about him. Mm -hmm. They were worried about, they were looking sideways. You know, pride makes us look sideways and humility makes us look to God. And so they're looking sideways with their pride and they, they're worried about what everybody else. Are these people going to believe me? This is Moroni. Like you just brought up Moroni too. Is this, are they going to believe me in what I'm saying? Are they going to support me in what we're doing? Is my wife going to be pacified towards me? You know, all these things. And the Lord comes along and says, listen, behold, if they will not, they will not believe on my words and they would not believe you, my servant Joseph, if it were possible that you should show them all these things, which I have commanded unto you. In other words, they could have seen the angel Moroni. They could have seen the plates. They could have had the same instructions. But the thing is, is they wouldn't believe. Because it's this whole concept that knowledge and showing does not give access to being. Bringing ourselves into a moment of experience with God, that's what does the teaching. That's the good stuff. Everything else is just hacking away at the branches. We see that the Lord's coming along like, listen, I realize that not everybody wants to have these experiences. There's a whole other discussion to have about what God is going to do for those people who don't want to have those discussions right now. But when we go back to section four and we realize that, hey, listen, if you have a desire to serve God, guess what? You, you want to experience God. That's it. If, if you just have the desire, if you just, if you just have the desire to want to serve, guess what? You're called. You're there. That's what this is all about. But I know that there's people who don't even want to have that experience yet. And I'm going to take care of them. But Joseph, you were worried about those people and you were freaking out about them. Don't do that. <laughs> it's not your and this job. This is such a good lesson. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not your job. Go steady the ark somewhere else. It's, it's the, you just worry about you. Just like what we said about Moroni, seven and yeah. nine. You just deal with Moroni. You let God be God. Joseph, you do Joseph. You're Joseph. I'm God. So I love that. Thou art Joseph. You be Joseph. <laughs> Stop trying to be God. Yeah. Stop thinking this is your work. Yeah, that's an interesting way of, of putting that phrase, thou art Joseph. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't actually quite put that together yet, but I think that fits with, with hey, 
you know, you're Joseph, you're not God. <laughs> that's that's an interesting way of in- interpreting that. You know, this section five has a, a lot of great uh, little pieces in it here. And verse 16, really just been pondering over for the past several days after I've been studying this section. And I feel like there's probably a lot of discussion that could be gone into it. But um, just one little thing I've been thinking about with this verse, verse 16, and behold, Whosoever believeth on my words, them will I visit with the manifestation of my spirit, and they shall be born of me, even of water and of the spirit. I was thinking about this verse because in our Latter-day Saint culture, we want to say, oh, baptism and gift of the Holy Ghost right here, right? And yes, but I'm going to I'm going to sort of switch this up a little bit. We have the ordinances of baptism and laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those ordinances are pointing us in the direction of an experience, but they're not the thing, right? They are pointing us to the thing. And here, when it talks about whosoever believeth on my words, then will I visit with the manifestation of my spirit. This is an experience. And part of this experience is something that is symbolized, or let's take it this way, not symbolized, but that is the metaphor of being born of water and of the Spirit. What he's talking about here in verse 16 isn't exactly baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. What he's talking about is the same thing that baptism and gift of the Holy Ghost are talking about. There's this experience beyond the ordinance. This verse isn't talking about the ordinance. It's talking about the experience beyond the ordinance. And so they're both pointing to that. It's kind of like um, when last week we talked about um, the temple and how the ordinances in the temple were pointing us towards an experience. And then this verse was talking about something that was pointing to that experience. The verse wasn't talking about the temple. It was talking about the same thing that the temple's talking about. So that's kind of what I mean here by this being born of water and of the spirit, that we need to take ordinances for what they are. And what they are is a a way of pointing us towards an experience that we can have, but we should be careful not to look at the ordinance in and of itself as the totality of the experience. Now, um, it's very uh, it's very possible and, and maybe even likely that while a person is performing or, or doing an ordinance that they also have the experience at the same time. And that can happen, but they are really two different things. I, I fear that in our culture, we equate them too much so that when people experience the ordinance and they don't experience the other thing, they get confused and they they don't understand what they really are supposed to be experiencing. They think, oh, that's that's it? Okay. No, there there's there's something more. This is just telling you that there is something more. So don't think this is it, you know? Yeah. You and I were were talking a little bit beforehand, and I, I know I've I've shared this story with you before, even beyond today. But you know, there was a moment in my life where there was a uh, it was like a three day conference I went to, and it was it was it was very powerful for me, and I I learned a lot there, and I walked out that from that three day weekend 
a completely different person. I've never been the same since. And it was such a revolutionary moment for me that it was the first time in my life I felt like the old me was gone. Completely gone. I was never going to be that person again. And what came out was this, this new thing. And I've, I've talked about these experiences before as the first time I experienced my baptism. It was like that because baptism is symbolic. Yes, going down into the water, putting on white, going down into the water, giving the ordinance, going down, being submerged in the water and coming out. That is an experience. It is such a beautiful experience. It is an amazing experience. But that experience is symbolic of another experience we're supposed to have. And we're supposed to have this experience all the time. And in fact, the water is you know symbolic of death. And we go down under death and we come out someone completely brand new. And so these experiences that we have in our lives, where we feel that we are dead to the old and we are now being born into the new, that's what we're doing. We're experiencing what our baptisms symbolize. But what I love about verse 16 here, Ben, and about what you bring out is that I walked away from that conference I was at, and I was like, man, I wish everybody could experience this. And, you know, it didn't take me very long to, you know, kind of come off that high a little bit where I realized that, you know, this isn't going to, this particular experience that I had isn't going to land for everybody. In me, in that particular moment in my life and what I needed, that was amazing. But everyone's going to have to come to their own death and rebirth. But for me, that was what I thought was like a, the baptism of water. That had to do with my my body, my mind, my the, the way that I looked at my the world through my conscious mind. But it's not until I came into the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and I began to study the words of Christ at a deeper level. When that rebirth happens, that penetrates someplace deep inside my soul that not even this physical transformation otherwise happened. The, the, this by spirit, this transformation by fire, this baptism by fire is such a deep, deep thing that goes on so deep within ourselves that there's these so these, these fundamental transformations that happen where, again, we know we're never going to be the same person again. That baptism is a death of the old. But whereas the water comes through and cleanses away, it's the fire that refines and sanctifies and purifies. And that process, when we actually go through the experience of the refiner's fire and the baptism of fire where the old is dead and the new is reborn, man, some of those moments are harrowing. <laughs> some of them are pretty some of them are pretty rough. But my experience is, man, they are so worth it. One of the other parts here in this section bears talking a little bit about Martin Harris now, and I think maybe we'll talk about him later. He later had some personal disagreements and grievances against Joseph Smith, and similar to Oliver Cowdery in, in some ways, some things they disagreed with Joseph Smith on. And then I'm not sure if Martin Harris had some particular qualms with uh, polygamy or not, but in any case, uh, Martin Harris uh, ended up uh, leaving the church for a time. And then he he comes back later to the church, goes out to Utah and and um, does he go out to Utah? I know Oliver Cadbury does, but I might be messing up the history here. In any case, Martin Harris does rejoin with the church and is is brought back into the church when he's older. His but his testimony um, of the Book of Mormon and his conviction and assertion 
that it was exactly everything that he said it was and Joseph Smith said it was never changes. And that's really fascinating. In fact, Oliver Cowdery's the same. And David Whitmer, the, the third witness, he doesn't ever come back and join the church, but he likewise doesn't deny any of the 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 things that he said about the Book of Mormon. And given all of the grievances, uh, legitimate <laughs> as they may have been against Joseph Smith, that's a very interesting thing to to point out. Later in their life, even after Joseph Smith is dead, these men didn't come and say, you know, we just made it all up. You know, that's something you got to chew on, right? That's something you can't just dismiss and say they did just make it all up, you know? Yeah, the story of the three witnesses is powerful, and it's one of my favorite. I'm excited to come into the time when they get to see and to be able to talk about them. Because when we see what they went through, and I like that you said, some of these complaints about Joseph, where there's smoke, sometimes there's fire. You know, Joseph wasn't perfect. And then there was a lot of time when people were being, it was just, it was simply a matter of pride. And, you know, as Latter-day Saints, we very much tell the story and putting Joseph in a, in a particular light where, you know, everything around him was just light and rainbows all the time. And that just, it just wasn't the case. No, we're going to find out when we get to the Missouri part, that wasn't true. Yeah. Right. And so there's always going to be just different things about this story, but what I, I think is just amazing and I'm so happy to be able to to talk about it this year with church history is to discover God behind the words of Joseph and the words of church history and to see the men who were participating in the restoration of the gospel to see what they were doing and how they were coming forward and, and the part that they played in all of this and to see that they brought with them all of their own weaknesses and foibles and that you have to see God behind them as well. Because no matter what, I'm so thoroughly convinced from, from studying so many different religions, uh, from the Bhagavad Gita to the, the Quran to the Old Testament to the New Testament, to read the holy books of different religions and to see God inspiring them as well. To see God coming out in the same way in every holy text to all of his children. To see the way that he is bringing them into the conversation with him. That just like we talked about with the hero's journey, and that's really why I've emphasized it as much as I have. I'm not particularly a huge Joseph Campbell fan, but what I love about it is this idea that we can begin to see certain themes of God in everyday life and everyday people that have existed all over the world, in every culture, in every religion, and to be able to see God coming through in all of these things. To realize His Spirit and His, and his inspiration that are coming forward in these, in these ways. So that with us today, we can have a sense of humility and wonder and awe in seeing how God works with His children. And it does help us to kind of reframe some of the absolutism that we have as Latter-day Saints. There are a lot of truth claims that we have, and those have kind of evolved into absolute truth claims. And I think those truth claims have softened in a lot of ways. Sometimes we've doubled down on others. Some of them have softened. But through this year, I'm super excited to see those moments when, when the God of the Sermon on the Mount and the God of the Beatitudes— 
here I am talking in third person like this is <laughs> like, I, I'm not talking straight from God, right? So I'm talking third person. So I feel, I, I feel like I, I, I get what Joseph is here. When you see this God coming through and, and being with his, uh, being with the people, it's just, oh, it's, it's amazing. You know, here in verse 33, you know, there's a couple places I have, but what's coming out to me right now is in verse 33 of uh, section five. And there are many that lie in wait to destroy to destroy thee off the face of the earth, and for this cause that thy days may be prolonged, I have given unto these these commandments. <laughs> and I, and I, lo- I, lo- I love this, the way they put this. And he's like, hey, so there are some bad guys that want to do some bad things to you, and I things are going to be what things are going to be. You know, if you jump off a mountain, if you jump off a mountain, things are going to happen. Not, not necessarily going to be there to save you, but I'm just here to tell you that if uh, you keep on doing some of these things, people are going to kill you. And hey, that's going to be a thing, right? <laughs> and I'll go find me a new Joseph, and we'll get the rest of the work. All <laughs> <laughs> right, God's work is not going to get thwarted. So if you want to stay a player in this game, l- let me tell you how this is going to go. And then in verse thirty-four, I think is a lesson that is so beautiful. Yea, for this cause I have said, stop and stand still. I read that the first time and my body just, it's like I was holding this tension and it just let go. I was like, okay, I can do that. You know, so much in our lives, we just, sometimes it's in our religious culture. So it's very much in our American culture, right? This whole work yourself to death and always work to get ahead. And you know, there's never going to be enough and sufficient. You can't work yourself enough and you can't ever get enough. And we have this consumer culture. And what is it like to have that experience where you just take one minute, just just one minute out of your day to sit down, close your eyes, take a couple deep breaths, and to let yourself stop and stand still? I just, yeah. Anyway, that hit me when I read it. It uh, really hit me as well. Um, I have that marked. I had... An experience many years ago, my wife and I had been married a few years and we had learned that it was not likely that we would conceive and have children naturally. And I uh, we went through, you know, periods of of depression and, and uh, you know, coming to terms with that and, and figuring out what it meant for us. And and we we'd been married a few years, and and we were kind of in a position finally uh, financially that we might be able to go and and get some tests done and figure out exactly what was going on. And there was a time when we had one car, and um, my wife would get up early and drive the car to work. She taught at a school close to where we lived, and then I would get up and I would walk to the school and get the car and go to work. And then when she was done, she'd walk home and I'd I'd bring the car home. So it actually worked out pretty well. But um, what was actually pretty precious about these times, these walks that I got to do from from home to the car each morning um, were just moments of contemplation for me. We had set up some appointments to go get some tests done and and start looking into things. And we were supposed to have those the, the next day. And I was walking and thinking about this, and I had probably one of the one of the clearest revelations that I've had in my life, and it was just wait. I 
I have something for you. I have prepared something for you. And it was almost like exactly this verse here. Stop and stand still until I command thee, and I will provide means whereby thou mayest accomplish the thing which I have commanded thee. And it was such an interesting thing to hit me. And there wasn't any argument in it, you know, like it was just, I have something for you, just wait. We were living in Utah at the time, and you know, there's the whole cultural narrative of church and and, and of our religion that says, hey, kids, 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 push them out, you know? <laughs> so if you're not doing that, then you're not uh, obeying the commandments, right? And I know that uh, that's not true, but that's the that's the underlying, that's the undercurrent of the culture, right? Yeah. So there's all that pressure. And when I really sat and thought about it, and the Lord was able to come and teach me, there was no pressure whatsoever. That wasn't at all his design. He wasn't pushing me in one way or the other. And here I had this revelation that was just, wait, I have something for you. And, and we discovered that he did. Years later, when we um, adopted two of our children and then and then um, did IVF and have our third child. But that was such a, a precious moment for me, for the Lord to tell me to just, you know, we thought we were proceeding with what the Lord wanted us to do. And then we had this moment where the Lord just told us to wait. And so I, this, this verse just, just really resonates with me in, in that way. And, and I can understand it. I've experienced it. It's so fascinating to see what happens when God makes himself present and when he reveals himself that way and he sits with us. You know, in the experience that I shared, like a severe rebuke, it was just love. And it wasn't judgment. That rebuke, it wasn't judgment. It was just love. It, it, and it just released me from everything that that false self held on to, and it was just a moment of of release. Talking about Moroni, you know, we've gone back to, to Moroni a couple times now. It must have stood out to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> in that moment in, what is it, Mormon 7, 8 or 9, where he's complaining, complaining is another word, he's lamenting to God about his inability to write. Ether and then 12. he's lamenting, oh, Ether 12, that's right. Yeah. Ether 12, and he's lamenting to God about not being able to do this and the Gentiles won't have love and they won't accept what we're going to say. And I know, God, I know what you said about love and I just don't know. And God comes on both times and he's like, Moroni, just focus on your own. I've got you. You're good. Let them be them and let me be God. And that kind of rebuke, you know, we talked about that moment that when God, when God makes himself present in those moments, any kind of rebuke, any kind of correction, any kind of setting at on a new course is always, a, is always a liberation. It's, it's a weight that is lifted off of us. We know it's God when through the correction, weight has been lifted off of us. If it hasn't been lifted off of us, it's not God. That goes back to the standing blameless thing we were talking about. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, well, I'm going to go back and look at that with that, uh, with that in mind. Because when we really just sit there and let the Lord be the Lord and let God be God, 
it just takes that my burden is light. Well, come to find out, <laughs> there is no burden. Of course, it's light. Mm. It's just, you just let this come off of you, and I've got you. There's a guy I've worked with for uh, you know, years and years uh, here in Bakersfield. He's the guy who really got me into pest control and into the business side of it. You know, when I just before I just recently sold my company, but he's talked a few times of his life, and it's the first time I really heard it this way. He says, Shiloh, with my business, I've had, he's not LDS. He, he's attending a, a Catholic church right now because his wife's Catholic, but uh, he grew up Church of Christ. Uh, he's a funny guy. I, I, I love him deeply. He says, Shiloh, there's times in my life I just couldn't do it anymore with my business, with my life, with my family, with just, just problems everywhere. This man loves his wife more than any 10 people I know put together. Um, he's so devout with uh, him and his wife are so cute together. And he says, sometimes I just have to say, God, I can't do this anymore. I just need you to take this from me and just to, and just to let this come off of me. He says, God has come in every single moment and something has happened. Either the situation corrects itself or I find the strength to get through it. But inevitably the burden leaves. Something shifts. And with that, I tried to, I, I started experimenting this with my own life and Man, no matter how many times I experiment with this, it almost always bears out. And so frustrating to me is <laughs> even with that knowledge, I still understand the Israelites when all they had to do was look and they would be healed. Yeah. Like, that's it. You, know, you get bit by snakes and all you got to do is look. And because of the easiness, they're like, uh-uh, it can't be that easy. Yeah, it is that easy. You just have to go to God and let it go. And it goes. And even though I know that, even though I've had experience after experience after experience of that, the frustrating thing is, is I still don't do it, even knowing it's a thing. <laughs> and then once I finally recognize, I'm like, why haven't you done that yet? And then it's like, well, I don't need to. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't need to carry this anymore. Just give it to God. And I'm like, all right. And then the false self doesn't want to do it because it can't be that easy. Yeah. <sighs> but it is. God, God liberates us. He saves us. I don't, I don't know how it works. It's like Enos. I, I've been in that place more like Enos. It's like, God, how is all of this possible? And sometimes it comes in as like, that's not even the, the right question to ask, but it is. And for me, most of the time, that's completely sufficient. I'm like, you know what? I, I don't know how this works, but it does. And you know, what you're saying is so fascinating in the context of this Joseph Smith narrative, because this is exactly how it goes down, right? Joseph Smith's so overwhelmed with this translation and the fact that they lost the 116 pages, he's going to have to do it all over again. And he doesn't have anybody to do it for him because Martin Harris can't do it anymore. And when he just lets it go, he stops and stands still. The Lord gives him Oliver Cowdery. The translation goes way faster than it did before, and it just, you know, things work out because he is able to let it go and let the Lord just take care of it and not be so tight on this thing that he thinks is his work and not the Lord's work. It ends up working out. That burden is shifted. Yeah. Well, Ben, I I want to sit with that for a while. I don't think I have anything else to say. <laughs> neither awesome well everyone thank you for being with us this far you know ben and i really we really have no idea how many people get to who gets to listen to this and i just want you to know how much god loves you
and whatever you're going through in your life, and whatever struggles you're going through, God's bigger than the struggles. I know a lot of people right now are in a lot of pain in so many different ways. And there are fears, and there are doubts, and there are worries, and there are concerns. And there are sometimes ways that we want things to be solved in certain ways that, if they can be solved in certain ways, then that would fix our problems. And then things are not fixed in those ways, and we tend to think, and I've thought so many times in my life, man, God must not have been there. But there's not a moment in my life that I've ever looked back on my pain where, kind of in retrospect, a lot of the time I've looked back and I've seen God there. And I'm grateful for the moments that He lets me endure that pain. I'm not grateful for it in the moment. I don't think I've, <laughs> I haven't mastered that part of it yet. <laughs> but I've been able to taste of the goodness and the love of God in my pain enough to be able to say that He's there. And I know that if he's there for me, I know he's there for all of you. Thank you for listening. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. We'll see you guys next week.